0: When Kyle Bryant was a kid, he grew up in California, kind of like your everyday kid, running around, playing with all of his friends, super active, athletic, outdoors all the time, his whole family was. And then in his late teens, something started to change. He noticed that he was struggling with his stability and balance and strength to a certain extent. And normally a super active kid and an athlete, he was starting to sort of see declines in his performance that nobody could really explain. That led to a whole bunch of questions, a whole bunch of medical professionals being in the mix and eventually a diagnosis of something called Friedrich's Ataxia or FA for short, which is a neuromuscular condition that is progressive in nature. And as of now, at least, there's no treatment or cure for it. He was about 17 when he got that and he had to make some decisions about what he would do with his life, about, how he would define himself and the expectations he had for that moment forward and the choices that he would make and the actions that he would take. And that led to him actually going to college and then discovering in a moment cycling, actually uh, using a specially developed tricycle. And that profoundly changed his life and set him on a path to become not just what I would describe as an ultra endurance athlete, but... Really somebody who was on a mission with a stronger, bigger sense of purpose to shine the light on what he was capable of on this condition and also to shine the bigger light on how we all define ourselves as able-bodied or disabled and what that even means in the context of our sense of possibility and how we choose to live each day. His entire journey is also detailed in a really moving new memoir called Shifting into High Gear. And we explore a lot of the, um, the really powerful moments along this journey in today's conversation. Super excited to share it with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. with some of the world's best meditation teachers to show you how meditation helps kind of smooth out some of life's wrinkles using cutting edge science and hard-won experience to demonstrate the tangible benefits that meditation can have. And listeners of Good Life Project get 40% off. Just go to 10percent.com slash goodlife. That's 10% all spelled out T-E-N-P-E-R-C-E-N-T.com slash goodlife. And if you aren't ready to meditate just yet, but are Curious how smart ambitious people use meditation and benefit from it? Well then check out the 10% Happier podcast. Either way, you can find it all at 10percent.com/goodlife.
1: I was born in Auburn, California, and I grew up in the foothills in California, Grass Valley. I went to school, um, you know, elementary school, high school out there. And uh, I went to college at UC Davis right near Sacramento. Right. Um, and then I owned a home in Sacramento for a little while after college. So yeah. yeah.
0: And it sounds like you were also like you and your whole family, I guess, were just super active, super outdoorsy
1: yeah yeah i mean yeah hunting and fishing and camping and you know with my my parents and my brother all the time you know we we owned a boat and my friends owned a boat and so we would be wakeboarding and stuff my brother and i were lifeguards and all my friends were all lifeguards Mm -hmm. in high school and so you know we'd lifeguard and then we would go wakeboarding on our breaks and stuff and um, I mean, shoot, it was a dream. I feel It like. sounds pretty <laughs> idyllic. <laughs> like, yeah. Um that's awesome.
0: What were were you into? I mean, when you were younger, was there did you have a thing? Were you sort of like into any particular things where you're like, ooh, I just want to do more of this?
1: Um, not really. Um, and you know, I think I was I was into everything, you know. I, I loved lots of different things, and that's one thing that I appreciate about my disability about FA is that it introduced me to cycling. Mm. And I don't do a lot of different things anymore. And I focus on cycling. And that has allowed me to become a what I I enjoy it because I feel like I'm pretty good at it. And I can do it well. And um, you know, focusing Spending all my energy preparing for cycling and getting good at it has has been a really positive thing in my life.
0: Yeah, it sort of gives you uh, one place to turn all of your energies. Um, so, so you brought up fa and you brought up um, uh, cycling. So let's let's kind of fill in the spaces here. A yeah, yeah. Bit. So you're you're kind of just going about living an everyday life. You're the kid kicking around with your family, with your friends, super active outdoors. When do you start to notice that something's just a little different?
1: Um, I think, I mean, thinking back on it, I think I I started saying it early, but, you know, we didn't really know what to think of it. Like, I didn't, you know, my skills were going down in baseball specifically and, mm. you know, basketball and things. I wasn't able to keep up with my friends. Like, I was on the football team freshman year of high school, and I was – You know, I'm obviously not built like a lineman, but I was on the offensive line because I couldn't run fast, you know. And, um, you know, so those kinds of things were kind of adding up. And that's what forced us to start looking for answers. So it it really started as, you know, balance of coordination issues.
0: Yeah. Did it happen sort of slowly over time or was this was it sort of like fairly quick?
1: No, absolutely. It, it did happen slowly over time. And yeah. it's still, you know, in me, it progresses um, slow, a lot more slowly than other people. Right. Um, and that's kind of one of the things with FA is that, you know, de- from person to person, it varies a whole lot depending on some things that we know about and some things that we probably just don't even know, you know?
0: Yeah. So you're, you're noticing these sort of um, s- symptoms or, you know, around balance and stability and stuff like that. And did you immediately sort of like, cause you're a kid at this point, you're like late teens, right? When right. this is starting to happen. Did you immediately go to your parents and say something's going on or, or were, you, was it more like, eh, let me just sort of. <laughs> Pretend no, this isn't happening.
1: It was totally pretend this isn't yeah. happening at all. I just push through it. Um, you know, my skills were going downhill in baseball when I was like 14, 15 years old. And, you know, my dad finally convinced the rest of us that something was truly up here and we needed to start looking for answers. Um, and so... You know, I'm really grateful to my parents. I have incredible parents and, you know, for them being such an advocate for my health and being like, you know what, something's off. Let's let's take a look at this.
0: Yeah. Did you, when, when your dad, when your parents reach a point where like, okay, something is off enough so that we actually need to treat this seriously and go, did you ever, have you talked to them about the fact, like whether they had, whether they thought they knew what was going on, or what the fears were, or the concerns were in their minds, you know, before they even started down the road of figuring it out.
1: Well, I mean, so the first diagnosis we had from a doctor was benign tremors, and so just because I couldn't hold my hand still, mm. and when it, when I would hold it out in front of me. And so we're like, "Oh, it's just a it's just a thing." And you know, like nothing to worry about, you know, it'll go away or it'll just be something we can deal with. And um, you know, that would turned out not to be the case because we kept looking for answers and and um, you know, a couple of misdiagnoses, uh MS and other things. Um, and finally landed on the diagnosis of FA, but uh I think you know, initially my parents didn't think that it, it was anything all that serious. Mm. Um, that it was like, here, take this pill and you'll be fine in the morning or something, right? And that is, uh, you know, not what, what ended up happening.
0: Yeah. When you were going through this whole thing, because you and your brother are pretty close in age also. He's a couple years old. Right. right. Were you, were you, you, Were you guys open with each other or were you sort of like sharing what was going on in your head about this with him?
1: Not really, I yeah. I yeah, I mean, we you know we hung out some, and we had same groups of friends of you know a few overlaps here and there, but um, you know we we weren't really like late night heart to heart kind of guys, you know what I mean? so. not, not many guys are, especially
0: <laughs> at that age, you sort of like you just don't have yeah. the skills to even attempt it, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> What about your friends? I mean, because they, I mean, obviously if your parents are starting to take you around to docs and they're, if it's enough so that you're noticing it and your parents are noticing it, I'm also guessing that like whoever you're playing on teams with or your friends around are also saying, huh, did you, were they brought into the loop at all sort of early on or?
1: Um, I, you know, I think I, I tried to keep them in the loop, um, because, you know, I have, I was really close with my friends. They mean the world to me and they still do, um. And it was really hard to um, think of myself as disabled or with a disease, you know, in the scope of my group of friends Um, and sort of, I mean, at that age, comparing yourself to other people, right? And, um, you know, feeling like I was going to hold my friends back from Mm. what they wanted to do in life um, or not in life, but, but just day to day, I guess. And so that was really hard. I asked, I, I love asking my friends what, what they thought when I was first diagnosed. Um, I had a doctor's appointment one day. I found this out a couple of years ago, but I guess I, you know, all my friends were hanging out in my, my one friend's parents' house in the basement. And I walked down the stairs and I said, You guys, my doctor said my brain is shrinking and like so that was my understanding of what was going on at that point obviously that wasn't true but that's what I took from you know and maybe I was trying to be a little over dramatic or something but um you know I think my friends always knew something was up but they just didn't know what it was or what to do and yeah. it, I think it was a bit of relief to all my friends when we're like all right we have something to point to to be like all right this is what's going on and now we at least know we're not just we don't want to feel bad anymore it's not anyone's fault it just is yeah you know?
0: so tell me so walk me
1: through um when you
0: finally go to this doctor who's like okay so i think i know what it is um And then I guess there's testing that gets done.
1: Right. Yeah. Well, and the thing is, like, the first few doctors we went to, they didn't even know what Friedrich's ataxia. You have to order the Friedrich's ataxia test. And so if you don't even know, like, then it's, you can't test for it, right? And so it really took someone who had seen F.A. before Mm. And they could pick it up just by walking, but just by watching we walk down the hall, Mm. Um, you know, and then obviously we got the genetic test to confirm it. Um, I mean, you can hear it in my voice right now. I haven't had any drinks today. No. Um, But. You know, I th- I feel like I could probably diagnose the FA over the phone just because I know how it sounds. You know, I've I've heard it so many times, and I love the people behind those voices. You know, and so many of my good friends. So
0: yeah. So what actually is it? You know, like you, you know, we, we shorthand it as as, as FA. I guess that's sort of like the, right. the easy way to say it. Tell me more about what it actually is.
1: So DNA is a series of codes. And one of those codes is GAA. Now, you have less than 30 GAA repeats in your DNA of that code. I have 450. Some of my friends with FA have over 1,000 up to like 1,500 repeats. When that code gets decoded, it makes a protein called frataxin. I don't make enough frataxin. And my friends with FA don't make enough Freitaxin. And Freitaxin is needed to help the body make energy for all the operations Mm. of a cell. And um, so, with a lack of Freitaxin, then cells basically just don't operate correctly. Um, And it causes a lack of energy and it causes balance and coordination issues, um, scoliosis, diabetes hearing loss vision loss and like shortening heart complications um you know and so people see me i'm 37 years old and i'm still getting around and i'm still you know a happy guy and and productive and people be able like well what's the big deal you know like you can hear them saying that in their heads and and i am really fortunate to have the ability that i have Right now, a lot of kids are diagnosed before the age of 10, and the outlook is not as good as what I experienced. Mm. So this truly is a life-and-death situation, and, you know, the bike rides that we do and all the fundraisers that we do to fund research, we're working to make life better and to find a treatment and a cure for everyone with FA.
0: Yeah. Is this a commonly um, occurring a, a, about how, how often does this
1: occur sort of like people on, a, on an annual basis? So the prevalence is about one in 50,000 people. Okay. So that that is about 5,000 people in the U.S. and about 15,000 people worldwide. Really? So it's pretty rare. The National Institute of Health they designate a rare disease as a disease with a population in the US less than 200,000 people so
0: it and, clearly when yeah. that designation i mean does that also i would imagine that also negatively affects a willingness for companies to invest in research around it because you know generally there's a financial motivation for a lot of this because right. it takes a huge amount of money to actually find interventions um, when, when the population is that size is part of the challenge that there's just not a a, a lot of money and effort going into trying to figure this out.
1: You know, numbers are a challenge, no doubt, Yeah, you know, um, and drugs are going to cost a lot for the rare disease community. You know, that's an issue that we're all working on together in the community. But however, uh, you know, There are, for common diseases like the cold or hypertension or, you know, things like that, there are so many. There's like generics out the door, right? And rare disease, there's 7,000 different rare diseases. I think 95% of them don't have a treatment or a cure. And there's 30 million people in the US that are that are affected by rare disease. Mm. And so when you think of it in as the rare disease community, the rare disease is the next frontier, I think, for mm. a lot of companies. A lot of smaller companies are being formed around the idea of rare disease. They're like, yeah. all right, this is all we're gonna do. So there is a business model for rare disease treatments and cures um you know i don't think we're at the point where we know what a reasonable cost is Yeah, and you know well, obviously we're not here to talk about that but it, it is a, it is a challenge numbers are a challenge for the rare disease community but it's something that that it's like any other challenge we're we're going to deal with it and figure it out yeah
0: i mean it's, i guess it's interesting also with fa because it sounds like because it's genetically based um, when you start to look at things like CRISPR and things like that, where you can start to get into gene editing that I, I guess, not just for this, but for so many other things, it could be paradigm shifting for, in a lot of ways.
1: Absolutely. I mean, CRISPR, for example, has, has it absolutely has been a huge um, change in our community, just in knowing what's possible, right? And using it to expand ideas of how to approach treatment, and using CRISPR, for example, in in some of the research, maybe not as a direct treatment option, but um, to manipulate cells in a dish and figure out how how we might be able to solve this problem.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I, I feel like we're like on we're we're on just the the leading edge of that in so many different ways. Like I'm really excited for. You know, like however it is, you know, like two, three, five, ten 10 years down the road when yeah. it's really, it just becomes so much more developed in common. Um, let's kind of jump back into your sort of unfolding story though. So you, you're, you I guess, 17 when you finally get a diagnosis. Somebody right. says, this is what it is. We now know what it is. This is what it's about. And, and this is how, you know, it can potentially manifest in your life. When, when you hear that, and when you're sitting down with your family, What's going on in in your head? What's going on in like with your parents and stuff like that?
1: Well, I think, you know, we all have a vision for our lives and um, from a young age, you know, and that vision was crushed in that moment, you know, when we when they said Friedrich they attacked and we, they said, don't look, don't look it up on the internet. And that's what you do. Right. And, uh, you know, and that was 1998. So, uh, there wasn't a whole lot of information and what was on line was not good. It, it was, it was, uh, um, hard to take, you know, not that it wasn't true, but it was just not sugarcoated or. Yeah. There just wasn't a whole lot of hope back then, um, especially online. And, um, so I think partly I was, I was 17. And so, um, I chose to ignore for a little while. Um, but there was part of it that did crush the dreams I had had for the future. Um, and as I would come to note more over the next couple of years, I would find out more and more that like my life is going to be a lot different than what I had imagined it would be. Yeah. Um.
0: So this would have been the end of high school for you, also, and you were on your were you on your already were you on your way to uh, UC Davis at that point?
1: Yeah. Well. Um. So it was around the time when I was, you know, knowing that I was going to go on to college. Really? So. Um. Yeah. It was. It was a big change in a lot of ways in my life. Right. I mean, and so trying to figure out how this thing was going to fit into the plans I had for my life and how I was going to affect the world and, um, you know, affect the people around me. And, um, you know, I think I saw myself as a leader Hmm. and I saw this as jeopardizing kind of that position and, and kind of knocking me down a few rungs um, at the moment, and you know, until I could figure out what the heck it meant and what the heck I was going to do with it in, in my life.
0: So safe bet that uh, many of you have heard me talk about my Peloton bike and how much I absolutely love riding it. I have taught indoor cycling. I have ridden nearly every bike made and taken so many classes and Peloton just absolutely crushes everything else in every category. The bike itself is so sweet. The ride is just ridiculously smooth and pretty much silent. And it's got thousands of amazing classes to choose from that are streamed right to this big, beautiful screen with super inspiring instructors. And the fact that it's right there whenever I have, you know, time means that I actually use it. There's just no excuse not to get my workout in. Plus, it's just really fun. So I actually want to actually do my Peloton ride. I have recently been jamming to some pretty fierce and fun classic rock rides with Peloton's Emma Lovewell. And I love that you just get to choose the teacher, the duration, the intensity, and the music on any given day to completely match how you're feeling in the moment. And here's the thing. If you have wanted to try a Peloton bike, but haven't yet, they have pretty much just eliminated your last excuse with Peloton's worry-free 30-day home trial. So you now get 30 days to check out your own Peloton bike with free pickup and a full return if you aren't certain the Peloton bike is for you. That's 30 days to discover all the things you love about the Peloton bike, and you will love it because I do. So try it for yourself and see how the Peloton bike can change your fitness goals. Learn more about Peloton's 30-day home trial at OnePeloton.com and use the promo code GOODLIFE to get $100 off accessories with the purchase of your Peloton. That's OnePeloton.com and use the promo code GOODLIFE to get started today. Restrictions apply. So lately I've shared some really cool black and white pictures from my wedding on social media. Pictures I even forgot existed and they're really taking me to just this such sweet memory type of place. And none of it would have ever happened without the help of Legacy Box. So Legacy Box is the world's largest, most trusted digitizer of home movies and photos with over a decade of experience and over 450,000 families have trusted Legacy Box. So you send your Legacy Box filled with old home movies and pictures and they do the rest. Professionally digitizing your moments onto a thumb drive, digital download or DVD with very easy to follow instructions. And then you receive all of your original recorded moments back along with perfectly preserved digital copies the whole experience has really just been such a joy and yes there have also been some pretty hilarious and embarrassing shots from high school that I rediscovered those might not end up on social media and now all of it is preserved for maybe one day my grandkids to even see so go get your legacy box going because there's never been a better time to digitally preserve your memories Visit legacybox.com/goodlife today to get started. And for a limited time, they're offering our listeners an exclusive discount. Go to legacybox.com/goodlife and you will get 40% off your first order. Go to legacybox.com/goodlife and save 40% today. Get started preserving your past or just click the link in the show notes. You know, it's interesting to have like those plans, and also to see yourself to have this identity, self identity as a leader.
1: Absolutely. You right. know,
0: and then, because um, it's really you're you've got to re reimagine and re envision, like from think round up, who am I, and and what's the life that I you know like thought that and expected I was going to live, and I guess you, you can't even plan or imagine what the life you will now live is because there's just a lot of uncertainty ahead of you.
1: Right. Yeah. yeah. And not only that, but you know, the disease it's it's a progressive disease. Yeah. So um and there's no treatment, right? Right. Yeah. And right. no no treatment or cure yet. Uh and so especially when I was seventeen, I had no idea. You know, I I knew that one day I would probably be using a wheelchair. I didn't know when or you know, how quickly or what symptoms I would experience and all that stuff. So um, it was a really, really uncertain time.
0: For yeah. sure. Had you considered not going to school after that or?
1: No, I, you know, and so, you know, I'd say there was a blow to my vision, but I also resisted big time letting F.A. shift you know, maybe it changed the way I got things done, mm. but it didn't change what I wanted to do in life. And at the time, it was very important for me to go to school because basically my mom said, like, just go to school. You can do whatever you want after that. But I really, really want you to go That's to like school. That's like the one thing. <laughs> yeah. it's like,
0: um, so you went and, and you end up going to school. You know, so you've been dealing with this and, and navigating it with family and friends and it's sort of like a slow evolutionary process, then when you step into school, it's a whole new community and it's a way and it's, were you yeah. were you concerned at all about, okay, so like I'm cool with my friends and we love each other and you're yeah. like, well, whatever. It's like, you know, we just, we figured out along the way, but now as I step into this entirely new space with all new people mm-hmm. who don't know who I am, don't know my history, don't know my values and, and and everything else you know like are they going to see me for me are they going to see like this like was that a sort of part of the conversation in your head
1: yeah i and i mean i think it continues to yeah. be i think maybe that's what we all experience all the time when we meet someone new right like yeah. what what do they think of me and um and so you know that there was a, a tough thing but ultimately you know, I did end up going to the same school as one of my really good friends since we were in like kindergarten, um, and you know, we made some really good friends right up, right away, and um, it ended up being an amazing experience. But yeah, I mean, it it was big time because I was on my feet. So if I was if I was like may- maybe leaning against a wall. And talking to somebody. You would never know that I that anything was wrong. But as soon as I took a step and I was a little uneasy, um, you'd be like, What what's up with that guy? You know, and um so it was something that was in every interaction I had with somebody new that I met. Mm. And you know, it was a little bit of a fog too hanging over Even my good friends, um, because everyone knew there was something wrong. They knew there was something called FA, but I didn't talk about it that much. I didn't really know how. And so it was, I think it probably was a little bit of a barrier between me and some of my my friends.
0: Yeah, I know you write about an incident that happened. um, I guess it was coming home from a party um, with with some cops. (laughs) which was a there was a whole lot of misunderstanding that
1: happened there yeah yeah and a lot of that misunderstanding in that situation was because i didn't have a good grasp on how what i thought about fa and what i thought about myself yeah being a you know a disabled person and um what what that meant for me and so I wasn't able to talk about it with that cop that night. And instead I just got pissed off and, uh, it, you know, it didn't, it wasn't a good situation. Yeah. I mean,
0: so share what happened sort of, uh,
1: so I came out of a party, um, and the guy saw me, the cop saw me stumbling down the street and, um, you know, figured I was way too drunk for my own good and sat me on the, on the, uh, curb and, kind of, he calls for backup, he called an ambulance and a fire truck and all these lights and sirens started showing up and, you know, because they, they figured something was really wrong and I was not behaving very nicely towards them because I didn't know how to handle it. And I, I, you know, I figured everybody was looking at me and, um, and thinking down on me. So that's the way I felt about myself. And mm-hmm. I kind of projected that. And, um, you know, so I couldn't communicate clearly and let and let them know, you know, you know what? I have this thing called Friedrich Tactia. It's a repeat in my DNA that causes me to wobble when I walk. You know, like there's an actual reason for this. But I couldn't explain that, you know. Um, and f- finally we sort of got around to that idea. I think my friends probably helped out a little bit, um, because they weren't as emotionally like torn up as I was at that point. And finally they, you know, they, somebody was able to, to drive me home and what it, it ended up fine. But you know, it was the situation where I was like, all right, well, I gotta get a handle on this. because or else these in, these things are going to keep happening.
0: Yeah, I mean, it seems like it's interesting that you remember that one incident also, and it seems like that incident or maybe that whole window of time was kind of like a turning point for you to a certain extent.
1: Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, I think it's a turning point for a lot of kids, you know, in college, trying to figure out what the heck is going on for the rest of their lives, right? And... For me, there was this added complication of this rare disease that was causing me to, you know, get closer and closer to being in a wheelchair. And, and so, I mean, yeah, it was definitely a really tough thing to figure out how to make it work. And, um, you know, it was all coming down to, you. Know, after, I feel like after college, you're, on your own, you should be able to take care of yourself, right? And and I was starting to question if I was going to be able to take care of myself after um, you know after when I'm supposed to be able to.
0: Yeah, I mean, so where do you where do you go from there? How do you go from from that place to starting to to reclaim a sense of of directionality and agency and and purpose, almost to a certain extent.
1: Yeah, I think. Well, I think it takes the recognition that something needs to change um and then it's one step at a time one day at a time one pedal stroke at a time right and and you know it's little changes talking about their recognition like the recognition and then changing things does not obviously doesn't happen overnight. It happened over a series, a period of like 10 years, you know? Yeah. And, um, but it also, I think requires it for me, it was a lot of my friends and family and really good examples in my life. Like my parents who I could be like, all right, I need to change something because if I don't, then I'm going to go a way different direction than where I need to be headed. So Yeah. I
0: know at some point along the road around here, you discover cycling, but
1: a different kind of cycling.
0: When does that actually come into your experience and how does that happen?
1: So I was at home at i lived with a friend in sacramento and i was like this is like after you graduate yeah after i graduated i was working at this uh engineering firm in sacramento called brown and caldwell amazing place and um i was you know sitting in my cubicle during the day going seriously is this all there is to life um i think we all have that, that question at some points but then One night I was alone in my room and I was surfing the internet and I saw this guy who was about to circumnavigate the the country on his trike, this thing called a recumbent tricycle. I had never seen one before. The guy had MS, but he was about to do like a 6,000 mile, whatever it was, ride on his trike. And I was like, oh my gosh, maybe I can do that too. And the next weekend I I found a dealer near me and the next weekend I went, I did my first test ride and, you know, I took one pedal stroke and I saw the ground moving underneath me and it just gave me this amazing feeling like, like something magical was happening and I was able to move under my own power without a wobble, you know? And um, and from that moment on, I was addicted to cycling. You know, I keep thinking that that feeling is going to fade at some point. A long time has passed, but every time I get on my trike, I still feel that there's no place I'd rather be than on my trike because I feel powerful. I feel like... You know, I have control and I can go as far as I want to go when I'm on my trike.
0: Yeah. I mean, so for you, it's sort of, it It, it sounds like it's almost giving you back a certain amount of freedom.
1: Oh, big time. Yeah. yeah no. And, you know, without the trike for me, my world shrinks, mm. you know, and speaking of freedom, I mean, when I'm on my trike, it, it expands so much. Yeah. And I think that relates to my life when I'm not on my trike, you know, it allows me to think a little bit bigger. Um, It just opens my eyes a little more because I know what my potential is because of what I can do on my trike.
0: Yeah. When you start um, after that first time and you're like, the the light bulb goes on, you're like, huh, this is amazing. Um, Where do you go from there with the trike? Because in the... On the first time, I, it sounds like the, the first time you try it, you're just trying it. You're like, ah, let yeah. me check it out. Like, we'll see it is. The, like the switch gets flipped, and then you're like, okay what am I going to do with this? <laughs> I,
1: I called my dad. I was at the shop. I called my dad. I was like, dad, can I borrow $3,000? <laughs> I paid it back.
0: <laughs> right. You're like, look, I'm fresh out of school, but I got into a job. I just yeah. need it for a short amount of time. Right.
1: So, so I bought one that day and I started riding every chance I got, you know, and you know, the first few rides were a few miles, but soon I was riding 25, 30 50 miles at a time and within 4 months I rode a century ride which is 100 miles 100 miles in a day yeah and I was the very last person across the finish line but I done it you know I I couldn't believe ten it took me 10 hours to finish that 100 miles but it was in the books and no one could take that away. And yeah. that was an amazing feeling to me. And I just wanted to keep having that feeling more and more. Yeah. Um,
0: I, I I can't even imagine crossing that finish line the very first time that you do that. Were, were like family and friends like waiting there cheering you on also? Or?
1: No, it was funny because it, oh, really? was, it was kind of anticlimactic. <laughs> I was. All right. I was by myself. most Most of the riders were done. They were like finished eating their dinner and they were driving home. There was a few like volunteers, like they were taking breaking taking down banners right. and stuff. And like there was a few volunteers when I the finish line. Like I heard some claps from like you know across the field or whatever. But it was. But but I think that even almost kind of heightened the moment for me personally, because I was like, you know what? This is mine. This is my moment. And I love this. And it's not about anyone else. It's about what I can do and what I think of myself in this moment.
0: Yeah, it's not a performance thing for you. You weren't doing it because other people were there and it wasn't about getting the cheers at the end. It was just about the way you felt when you crossed the finish line. Totally.
1: And that that was a little bit of a departure for me because yeah. I'm, I'm kind of vain if I may. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, I really thrive off the feedback from other people, um, but I think, Experiencing that for myself and by myself, with myself, I think that was a powerful moment in my life to to be like, all right, I can do this myself, and and I can be an independent, strong person with a disability. Mm.
0: Yeah. Talk about a shift in identity and, and expectation.
1: Big time, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, I... I think from that moment on, I started expecting more from myself. Hmm. I think that's a a big thing, you know, especially for people with disabilities or or rare disease. I think we're limited by by our self-perception because we totally project that. We think other people think less of us. But uh, I feel, for me, I know it's... I need to change how I think about myself, and um, and that can change how I see other people seeing me. If yeah. that makes sense?
0: No, I think it does, and that I I would guess it also it changes how other people actually do see you. <laughs> when you yeah. feel a certain way about yourself, I think that radiates out. People just yeah. sense it; they respond to it. It's interesting, also, right? Because at at that moment, you know, I'm I'm curious does that also open the door again to that sort of former identity of, well, I'm a leader? And was did that make a shift in terms of your ability mm-hmm. to say, well, maybe I can actually still be that person, but in a different way?
1: Uh, yeah, I think so. Now you say that, yeah, absolutely. I, you know, like I said, I started seeing myself differently and maybe I started seeing myself a little more as how I used to, right? Maybe in a different way, or I got there. I got there, not exactly in a straight line, but you know, I was starting to get back to the way I used to see myself. Yeah.
0: So with that behind you, then I mean, where do you go from there? Because this was not the end of the journey for you. This was like, I mean, a hundred miles. It sounds incredible to to anyone, but that's just the beginning.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, before that, I had the notion in my mind that I wanted to ride my trike across the country to the meeting of the National Taxia Foundation. And that year was in Memphis, Tennessee. So I had that idea in my mind. But before that century ride, before I crossed that finish line of 100 miles in a day, I had no idea if I could even do it. And, you know, so I think that was a big turning point in the book where... I saw I could see myself as an athlete. If I if I never finished that ride, I don't know that I would have ever attempted the ride to Memphis mm. or Race Across America. You know, and um, so yeah, that was a, that was a big big moment for me, um, and it really opened my opportunities to the next step, which was the ride to Memphis. You literally decide to ride,
0: it was it about 2,000 miles, right, from where you were in California to Memphis?
1: About 2,500,
0: yeah. <laughs> <Man>. <laughs> So. And it was that ride that made you say, huh, this actually could
1: work. Yeah, maybe I can do it. Yeah. You know what? Partly, one of my thoughts was, you know what? If I can make it to the end of the block, why not the next? Yeah. And why not the next? And then all of a sudden, I'm 2,500 miles away, you know? So. Right so that that 100 mile ride really illustrated that in my mind how I could get it done
0: yeah so when you decide okay i'm actually going to do this where do you go from there because i mean you can't you can't do 2500 miles <laughs> solo
1: <laughs> right yeah no i mean it was a matter of you know pitching the idea to my parents and um i really didn't know how that was going to go i my parents are really supportive, but also they're reasonable people, you know, and I'm not sure that a bike ride to Memphis, <laughs> see, from California is a reasonable idea. Um, but I, I also know that they knew that we were up against a wall and we, we need to do something about this. It wasn't just going away and this opportunity that i was driving that i really wanted to do it presented itself and maybe my parents saw it as a way out of the hole that we seemed to be in and um and it ended up being that um and i think it's because we all treated it like that it was this opportunity to make something of this terrible situation that we're in. Yeah. So have you ever walked around all day in
0: shoes that kind of dig into your feet, don't support them, never fit right? Imagine if you had to do that all day, every day, it would be pretty brutal. So I have learned that for a lot of women, that is not too far away from what wearing a bra feels like. And that is not okay. All of this was entirely true for my wife, Stephanie, until she found Third Love Bras. So Third Love uses data points generated by millions of women who have taken their Fit Finder quiz to design bras with breast size and shape in mind for a perfect fit and a premium feel, making sure that women are comfortable all day, every day. And as Stephanie has shared with me, it is the hands-down most comfortable bra that she has owned with straps that won't slip and tagless labels, no itching. She even kind of forgets that she has her Third Love bra on. And Third Love is so confident you will love your bra. They give you 60 days to wear it, to wash it, to put it to the test. And if you don't love it, return it and Third Love will wash it and donate it to a woman in need. And Third Love's team of expert fit stylists are dedicated to helping you find your perfect fit and available every day to pretty much help buy it text or chat or phone so there's no need to be uncomfortable every day all day. Third Love knows there is a perfect bra for everyone. So right now they're offering our listeners 15% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com/goodlife now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase or just click the link in the show notes now. Beyond you personally completing that ride, riding 2,500 miles and showing up in the meeting in Memphis, was there a bigger intention? Was there a bigger purpose? Was there something else that you were trying to do or prove?
1: I think it wasn't fully formed, um, but I knew that I was having an effect on other people, specifically people with FA. And I was starting to be that... Leader that I saw myself as so many years ago, and during my ride to Memphis, we started in San Diego and we rode about forty miles a day. I was writing a blog about every a blog post about every three days, and I started getting all these uh, comments and emails from like all over the world, you know, from people who have the FA, but also that don't, and just tons of people telling me how my actions were affecting the way that they face challenges in their lives and I was like oh my like that made me feel like I had the responsibility to keep going and to make this thing happen you know so that I could bring a lot of people with me I guess and and it was just an amazing, humbling experience to know that I could affect people in that way. And then, you know, over time, realizing that those same people are the people that were driving me to be mm. better. And and it's a totally a circular situation in the FA community where we feed off of each other and encourage each other and get there together.
0: Yeah. You were... If I remember correctly, you were, was your dad riding with you on that one?
1: That, yep, yep. My dad, so he didn't even own a road bike until about three weeks before. <laughs> so
0: it's like, hey, dad, uh, you've never touched a bike before, but.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, you know, he was a mountain, he, he rode a mountain bike. I don't know that I would call him a mountain biker, but um, he, yeah, he had never owned a, a road bike. He'd never ridden 50 miles in a day, and, you know, sat on that tiny seat for, you know, six hours or whatever it takes, and, um, so, you know, my dad, my uncle joined us halfway through the journey, but, you know, they would, they would call it the, the 40-mile butt wobbles, because, (laughs) because there was no way around it, like, whatever you do, your butt just hurts after sitting on a seat for 40 miles, (laughs) It is what it is. Yeah. Um.
0: So yeah, I mean, and that that adds this whole different element to it, right? Because you're you're doing it not just yourself. You're doing it, you know. And there's a community of people that start following along in the journey. And like you said, it becomes this sort of circular feedback loop. You're feeding them, and they're feeding you. Right. But it's also this incredible experience that you're doing with you know, like somebody really close to you who you love and who's like out there and said. I'm going to do this side-by-side side with you the whole time.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, he's a guy who doesn't say much, but he, uh, you know, he shows up and gets the job done. And uh, we we didn't exchange very many words on that whole 2,500-mile bike ride, you know, but um, we were there together, and we're, you know, we were— when, when you're diagnosed with a rare disease, it's not, it's not me, it's not, I was diagnosed, it's, it's, we were diagnosed, you know, it's my, my parents, my brother, and my, all my friends, my whole community, everyone, and, um, you know, my parents were like, all right, let's do this, like, we're, we're in this thing, we want, we want to support you, and, you know, even though the words didn't exchange all that much, well, my dad and I were on the bike, um, you know, we really felt the support from each other, I think, and and that's really what drove us. And that's still what drives us to, to this day, I think.
0: Yeah. This whole ride took, if I remember, close to two months, right?
1: 59 days, yeah. Is, it, is that what you expected going into it? Yeah, because we kind of um, mapped it out as well as we could, you know, and we expected because, you know, we were riding to a conference and the conference starts yeah, on a certain <laughs> right. day, right? So, so it was like, all right, we we more or less knew how long it was going to take. Um, you know, towards the end, obviously, we had to adjust a few things. There was a point where we had to ride. Like we would usually ride about six or seven days and then take a a, a whole day and rest. Yeah. Um, but towards the end, you know, there was a point where we had to ride 10 days in a row to make sure we were gonna make it there on time. But really, yeah, I think it kind of worked out. Yeah, how was,
0: um, so for two straight months, basically, you're out there on the road. How how is your body responding to this? Because it's it's one thing to go and, and even do a century and then relax. It's another uh, thing to you know, like go out for a regular rides in your neighborhood, uh, but to keep up that pace for that long w- with a condition where your your body is sort of struggling to create energy, how did physically,
1: how was it for you? I think it was an adjustment, you know. I couldn't behave like people my age, right? I I had to be focused on like, okay, I'm going to be riding my bike all day. Tomorrow, so I better get to bed early. I better eat something good. You know, I better do all these things that are going to feed my body and make me perform well. So I think I sort of grew up, um, you know, in those two months, I really grew up a lot. Being able to listen to my body and know what I need to mm. to do to perform well yeah
0: were other than just sort of like having to make um, a lot of adjustments along the way were there moments of big awakenings or surprises that came your way or stories that have really stayed with you or shaped you
1: Yeah you know one it happened early but um you know I was having a really bad, uh, I was having a lot of trouble with my it band and it was, it was giving me a lot of pain. It band, it basically, a knee, I, it, it hurt in my knee. And, um, as we were climbing the mountains out of San Diego, you know, I was talking to my dad about how my knee hurt and he's like, Oh, well you're, you're not going to need your knee in the future. So don't worry about it. like just, and, and, you know, I appreciated that comment because it put it in perspective that this was just something we were dealing with. We we're going to get through it. Let's laugh about it for now. Um, it's not like he wasn't taking it seriously, but, um, you know, we were kind of having a conversation without having a conversation. And, you know, it was one of those moments where my dad and I connected directly. Um, and, you know, he was really voicing his concern for the situation in his way, right? And, you know, so that was that was a, a really n- neat moment for us. And, I mean, I guess the other that really sticks out is just finishing the ride knowing it's behind us and and knowing what we can do and and change once again changing the way we think about ourselves and about rare disease and disability you know yeah
0: tell me about that day when you when you ride into memphis
1: so it was funny because we didn't get lost all that much but we got lost (laughs) that day like we're right we're (laughs) so close no (laughs) Yeah, you know, we got in this big argument, like we are almost there. Do not self-destruct right now, you know? But um but it was really neat we we rode by Graceland. We rode we rode Elvis our his bike home. to Elvis' yeah. house, That's right? So, cool. <laughs> so I always uh, yeah, I always joked that I rode my bike to Elvis' house. So that was that was really neat. But um, you know, just pulling in our friends, a couple of our friends flew out, they had champagne and they were giving us a champagne shower and that was, that was incredible. And, uh, you know, there were a few other people with the Ataxia around and I got to connect and, and they got to tell me how proud they were of what we we're doing. And, and that was absolutely incredible. The leaders of the organizations that we were writing for were around. And, you know, it just, it it made me really proud of what we did. And and it made me, you know, think of the future. What was I going to do next? Like, how could I outdo this and bring the community with me? Yeah. So it sounds like it, it, like it,
0: it was proof of your
1: ability to do
0: something that is so far beyond the expectation of the most able-bodied person out there. Yeah. Uh. Right, and it's like no, if I if I can do this, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, like what what is the universe of possibility? Maybe I can just define it.
1: Yeah, it, no, totally. So I always think about this: if I rode my bike across the country as a disabled person, like what is disability? Like it all it is is what we think it is, right? Like. Like, that sounds a lot more able than a lot of, quote, able-bodied people, right? And so, you know, it got me thinking around that train of thought where maybe I'm not as disabled as I thought I was. And, you know, I need to expect a lot more out of myself.
0: Man, I I mean, that's such an amazing shift just in your lens on possibility. and and, And again, it's sort of like, these series of moments that it seems like keep evolving your sense of who you are and what you're capable of and, and the way you're identifying yourself.
1: Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. And identifying. Yeah. Myself to, to myself. I mean, I think, you know, a lot of it was, I wanted to prove something to the world, but more and more as I, as I get a little older, I'm like, no, I'm, I'm just proving this to myself and, um, Everything else will fall. So
0: yeah, and and in fact, that was not the longest ride that you've done. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> You're like, yeah, twenty five hundred miles was good, but there's something longer that I can do after that.
1: Yeah, yeah. So um, I heard about this race through a friend. It's called the Race Across America. It's literally ocean to ocean right. from the pier ocean Oceanside to City Dock in Annapolis, Maryland. So it's 3,000 miles all the way across the U.S. And to be considered an official finisher, a team has to finish in less than nine days. So it's 500 miles more than you rode before. And
0: instead of two months, it's got to be nine days.
1: <laughs> right? Exactly. <laughs> no yeah. problem. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it was, I I feel like I love to, Throw something out and see if I can go and get it. And this was one of those things. I was like, "All right, here it is. Boom! Let's throw it out. And now let's see if we can go and get it." I wasn't sure if we could, <laughs> obviously. And um, but also we prepared like crazy for it, and we had a really great mentor. And um, you know, it was the only things on our. It was the only thing on our minds for a year. So uh, you know, three thousand miles at fourteen miles an hour, twenty-four hours a day. Um, we crossed the finish line in eight days, eight hours and fourteen minutes.
0: Man. So that is unbelievable. I mean, that that race has been on my radar for cause that race has been around for a long time. Yeah, yeah. And it's known as being pretty much evil. <laughs> like yeah. pure, pure evil. I mean, this is a brutal thing. You're riding across two massive mountain ranges. You know, you're riding across this just big open space with crazy winds. And it's I mean, there are reports of people being delirious, losing their sense of everything along the way because you're pushing so hard um yeah. for so long, so aggressively. So yeah, I, I mean to 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 accomplish that, you know, then after what you did, the trip to Memphis is is really just stunning. It's like you keep saying Well, maybe this thing, you know, like quote disability, like what is or isn't that Right. I keep being capable of doing things that, you know, like anybody of any condition at any level of ability would find stunningly hard to do.
1: Yeah, I mean, how, yeah. How do we define it? Like, if yeah. you if you finish the race across America, are you no longer a, considered a disabled person? I don't know. You know, and and what what makes somebody more disabled than somebody else? You know, or like, how do we even think about that? Right. Um, you know, it causes me to have those thoughts for sure. Yeah, and it
0: seems like you've also really picked up the mantle of that leadership mantle of being a voice for for this disease being a voice not just not not a voice for the disease but a voice for um the community of people who are living with it for the, for the sense of possibility around it for attracting people and i guess awareness of it and maybe helping raise money because at this point you've now all of these things are now tied to some incredible fundraising that you're doing for research into it
1: right yeah and you know it truly is a matter of all of us working together and um, and encouraging each other to keep going and to raise more money. And because, and it's not just money, but it's progress towards a treatment and a cure for all of us together. Um, you know, and one thing I want to say about Race Cars America is it wasn't just me. I mean, we had a team, we had four riders, we had 13 crew members, who were all connected very closely to F.A. through a friend or a daughter or a brother or w- whatever it was. Um, and that's really what drove us across the country is the purpose. Um, and, you know, what you're talking about, what all this comes down to is why are we doing this, right? Yeah. Is because we want to improve the lives of others and we want to trim and care for F.A.
0: Yeah. Um, as we sit here today, so you, a lot of this is um, is shared in beautiful detail um, in, in a book that you've created. What was the impetus for you to actually turn on after all this and say, like, this needs to be a book?
1: <laughs> well, partly. All of my cycling and adventures have been documented um, you know through like articles that I've written or like mo- mostly stuff that that I've done myself and so I was like this you know this big ride that was really the turning point in my life needs to be written down and um, partly for me, um, selfishly, but partly hoping that it might speak to other people, um, that have FA or rare disease or with any challenges, you know. Um, and I didn't write it with the intent to be like, all right, if you follow these steps, this is how you're going to conquer your challenges. But I wrote it with the intent to document how I did and how I felt about myself, what I was thinking at all these different times, and and sort of illustrate how I got to the point where I was. And and maybe it relates to to you as well, you know?
0: Yeah. You share a story. I guess it was right towards maybe the last day, maybe the last 100 miles or so of the race across America, where I guess you're pretty beat up, pretty tired, and struggling. And I guess there was a, a kid who came up to you and sort of like shared some some words about how you, you were affecting him. Could you share a bit more about that moment and, and how that sort of changed you and moved you?
1: Yeah. Um, you know, it was really powerful, a young boy named Jack. I'm still friends with Jack and uh, he's an amazing guy, but he was 10 years old and I pulled, we pulled into a time station, and like you said, it was day eight, and I was tired, sore, and crabby. And uh, immediately, I saw this boy, Jack, and I started feeling sorry for him. You know, I was feeling sorry for the fact that Jack had to deal with that at such a young age. Um, but then he came over to me looked me in the eye with pride and confidence, and he said, Hi, I'm Jack. I have a track, too, and your team has inspired me to ride five miles in my neighborhood for FA Research this summer. And, you know, not only does that melt your heart, right, because of of what he's doing, but it also forced me to be like, all right, what what are we doing and what more can we do? to uh, you know, support Jack and all these other people because he's reaching out, being like, Look, I'm doing my part. You know, so so everyone should too. And not not that I knew I was I was um in the act of doing my part, but it really illustrated and solidified the idea of community and everyone pulling their weight and and we'll all get there together. Yeah. Um and such a powerful moment also because I think we all we hit
0: those moments where we're pushing really hard and maybe we're in a lot of pain or maybe we're just in a dark space. And Mm -hmm. my sense is that so many of us tend to withdraw into our own suffering in those moments. Understandably so, right? We're human. Sometimes when you have somebody on the outside who can kind of just step in and just say something or do something for a moment that kind of pulls you out of the fact that, you know, like, okay, so yes, um, yes and There's something much bigger going on here. You know, there's a bigger purpose that I'm a part of. And there's a bigger role that I'm playing. That can really just, just in the blink of an eye, shift the way that you experience the identical circumstance.
1: Totally. And um, I think it's up to us to be open to being able to see, not that at that moment, not that I was, Totally open to it because it took Jack to be like, "Dude, wake up here! Look what we're doing!" You know, because because I was tired and sore and and you know I was like, "I'm the guy. I'm I'm getting this done." And Jack was like, "No, dude, we're all getting this done together. Like, wake up." Yeah. So
0: this feels like a good place for us to come full circle as well. So sitting here in the studio and Good Life Project. having done so much incredible work and having so much incredible work ahead of you if i offer out the phrase to live a good life
1: what comes up i think service to other people and like i was saying i'm i feel like i'm a little bit vain like a lot of us and and a little bit it, my ego takes over sometimes but in theory i always come back to serving other people and trying to remain humble and being a part of the community and not being the guy, but being a piece of the machine that's going to get us all to the finish line. That's what I think the living a good life is. Mm. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. Mm.